and welcome to another edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin Smith and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 26, 2024. We're less than a week from the retirement of a woman many consider a legend at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Matt, Principal Deputy Commissioner Janet Woodcock's last day is January 31st. You decided to consider where she ranks among all-time FDA leaders. So what did you come up with? Yes, I uh, um, ended up making a, uh, a, a regulatory Mount Rushmore of uh, sorts. The, uh, the Mount Rushmore the, being the big uh, um, monumental uh, carvings in the uh, um, I guess it's South Dakota. I should look that up. <laughs> um, but uh, I kind of really did a lot of research, at least some research for this, so before I uh, embarked upon my uh, my photoshopping, and I uh, believe I have the uh, the correct uh, uh, quadrant for uh, for the the uh, the particular Dakota where where it, where it is now. But uh, um, you know, Mount Rushmore is this uh, um, uh, carving of uh, uh, the busts of four presidents. So I thought, like, well, maybe I should pick the four most uh, impactful. Uh, um, FDAers of all time, and uh, Woodcock, uh, in uh, you know, in my uh, telling, is certainly uh, on that. Uh, um, so instead of uh, Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, and Lincoln, I have uh, Wiley, Kelsey, uh, Kessler, and uh, Woodcock. So uh, um, uh, maybe you Harvey can explain Wiley. who. Yeah, yes, I was going to say, yes, explain yes, who yeah, Harvey uh, Wiley is, in yeah, case some people I'll, don't know. I'll, I'll go on for. Um, Folks that uh, haven't spent a lot of time on the uh, uh, FDA commissioner biographical uh, page, uh, Harvey uh, Washington <laughs> Wiley is the uh, he's considered the first FDA commissioner, and uh, um, uh, he uh, he served in uh, um, uh, they 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 date his uh, um, term from January first, uh, uh, two thousand seven, which is when the Pure Food and Drugs Act went into effect, and nineteen oh seven. Uh, it's, uh, 1907. Did I say 2007? Gosh, I, uh, <laughs> uh, need to uh, um, need to have my coffee this morning. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, if you if you look at for kind of this uh, uh, classic tensions for kind of within FDA of for kind of are we a, a food regulator? Are we a drug regulator? For kind of what uh, um, you know, how do we do both uh, effectively? It was for kind of born uh, born with this law that sort of kind of had both of them in it, and uh, you know, to this day. Um, FDA is within HHS, but funded through the agriculture appropriations process, and uh, um, that's uh, um, a, a dichotomy that begins uh, then. Uh, you know, more than a century ago, with uh, um, with him, he was the chief chemist at the Department of Agriculture, and uh, um, when things started, that's that's where it uh, where it was. And uh, so, uh, um, you know, I, I figured it, it made a lot of sense that sort of kind of that. Uh, you know, as the father of the Pure Food and Drugs Act, uh, he would uh, sort of kind of take the father of the country uh, um, slot on our uh, on our uh, Rushmore uh, um, pretend uh, statue here. So he gets uh, he gets that one, and then uh, um, just going from left to right uh, um, uh, here for uh, a great uh, little uh, um, instruction for those of you on the uh, um, listening to uh, listening to the podcast. Very uh, very visual medium in the podcast, but uh, um, so next up is. Uh, um, uh, Francis uh, uh, Kelsey, who uh, um, uh, many people know uh, because she was uh, um, uh, the reviewer who held up thalidomide uh, 
you know, this now known as a, uh, um, you know, horrible uh, um, uh, tratogen uh, um, that uh, caused all kinds of birth defects, but uh, was never actually marketed in the U.S. because of her uh, insistence on, uh, um, uh, you know, additional data from the uh, the company that, uh, um, you know, wasn't providing it for her. So uh, um, that incident uh, helped, you know, sort of move along another piece of legislation that was for kind of instrumental in uh, uh, shaping FDA. Uh, you know, that was the uh, the um, the uh, Kefauver-Harris Amendment, uh, um, sometimes called the Kefauver-Harris Amendments. Uh, there's some uh, debate on the internet as to whether it uh, gets a plural or not, but uh, um, I, uh, um, I went with uh, um, the singular because that seems to be sort of uh, um, at least what the congressional record has for the uh, um, for the most part. So uh, um, that was 1962 when that sort of uh, came out. So another sort of uh, um, uh, epic of uh, um, of sort of kind of uh, regulation. One of the uh, the ironies, if you uh, if you will, is that sort of kind of uh, you know well this was sort of kind of a uh, safety near catastrophe that sort of kind of helped uh, uh, get that legislation passed. Uh, the amendments uh, or amendment the legislation uh, itself actually um, uh, dealt more with efficacy. It gave FDA for the first time the ability to require efficacy studies. Uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, beforehand, uh, the agency could uh, you know require safety data, but sort of uh, but did not uh, um, actually sort of kind of uh, have the authority to mandate trials to show that a uh, a product worked, uh, you know, for a particular claim uh, um, as it does now, and that was the uh, the big uh, pivot that that uh, um, that that uh, uh, legislation created. So she gets a uh, um, a spot on the uh, um, on the mountain because she's going to help to usher in that uh, era of sort of kind of uh, how FDA thinks about uh, um, regulating drugs. And uh, obviously, she's a drug person, uh, you know, Wiley. Uh, more of a uh, um, a food person, uh, you know. After he left uh, FDA, Wiley went on to uh, um, work for Good Housekeeping and create the Good Housekeeping seal approval. So sort of much more on the the consumer consumable side of things, as opposed to uh, you know sort of the uh, the physician side of things, where uh, um, Kelsey uh, um, uh, was uh, um, you know sort of you know at FDA for the rest of her career, and uh, um, uh, again, sort of kind of an interesting. Uh, um, uh, look at sort of, kind of uh, you know, sort of she was there to sort of kind of see sort of kind of the um, eventual bloat of uh, all these applications and sort of kind of how it uh, really sort of kind of dragged down uh, agency operations, all this important data that they were getting, but sort of kind of, but there was no uh, system in place to sort of kind of handle, uh, um, uh, handle that large uh, operations flow. And so, uh, you know, the, the next uh, um, person on, uh, um, on Mount Rushmore uh, um, for us is David Kessler. He was a uh, um, commissioner from 1990 to 1997. Um, many of you know perhaps uh, um, that uh, um, that spans two administrations. Uh, you know, he was uh, reported by George W. Bush and uh, retained by uh, um, uh, Bill Clinton. So uh, it uh, um, it was fitting, I think, that sort of, kind of he gets the Teddy Roosevelt uh, spot because of Teddy Roosevelt's sort of, kind of great. Uh, um, bipartisan appeal. He, uh, um, you know, uh, um, uh, ran a uh, very successful, well, not successful, but very sort of impressive uh, third-party campaign. Probably, probably the uh, the um, 
the highest uh, um, performing third war, uh, third uh, party campaign we'll ever see for uh, um, for president after he left office. But sort of, but uh, um, uh, Kessler uh, um, again, uh, um, I thought sort of, kind of had a lot of his sort of uh, uh, Roosevelt sort of kind of activist energy uh, um, on that uh, front. And and Kessler is uh, um, the first Dick Fisher to uh, preside over the use of uh, user fees. Uh, you know, as we were uh, as I was talking about the the. Uh, the, the the Kelsey uh, um, uh, you know obviously not her alone but sort of kind of the um, the idea that sort of kind of there's you know the the more and more data that you have the uh, the better decision that you can make and sort of kind of that kind of uh, um, uh, sort of ran into this uh, resource constraint that sort of was uh, um, for the most part resolved with uh, user fees and obviously sort of kind of FDA is not uh, without uh, um, uh, you know. Uh, Pressures on its time and uh, resources now, but sort of kind of that uh, um, that legislation really uh, um, addressed what was becoming a uh, um, a major problem for uh, both industry and the uh, um, and the FDA and sort of kind of a uh, Kessler in addition to sort of his sort of uh, um, activist uh, um, streaks sort of kind of was the uh, um, was the the commissioner sort of when that when that kicked off obviously he uh, didn't. Uh, um, Pass the uh, legislation itself. I was you know, sort of, always sort of an interplay between sort of Congress and these, uh, these FDAers that I have on the uh, um, on the Mount Rushmore. But uh, um, that was also, I think, a very sort of uh, um, important uh, era in the um, in the agency. So that's sort of kind of why he uh, um, gets on there. And then the last one uh, is uh, the reason did, did this whole thing in the first place. Uh, Janet Woodcock, uh, um, you know, she has the. Uh, um, the the Abraham Lincoln slot on uh, um, on Mount Rushmore and uh, um, I uh, I feel in many ways that she kind of uh, you know preserved the uh, the, uni the union if you uh, um, if you will that's her kind of she uh, really fought for uh, um, much more uh, um, efficiency and flexibility in terms of FDA's uh, approach to uh, um, how it reviews and approves uh, drugs and uh, you know just as uh, um, uh, she has many critics. Uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, Lincoln's uh, re-election was not uh, assured, just sort of given the uh, um, all the casualties from the uh, the Civil War. So I thought it was sort of kind of a uh, um, a fitting tribute that sort of she uh, um, she gets her kind of uh, um, put at that this kind of uh, uh, pantheon. So uh, that's uh, um, that's where I uh, um, uh, you know her photoshopped her in there, if you if you will. So. Uh, um, I uh, um, also think that uh, you know, even as we sort of uh, um, are now uh, um, well more than a century away from uh, FDA's uh, um, designated founding. Thank you for correcting my uh, um, 19 versus 20 there at the, at the beginning of this uh, uh, segment, <laughs> Derek. Uh, you know, we're still sort of kind of facing this uh, food drug uh, dichotomy. It's sort of kind of one of the last things that uh, um, uh, Dr. Woodcock is doing is for sort of kind of this uh, major reorg of. Uh, um, FDA's inspection operations, and uh, that was uh, brought about not by a, uh, you know, sort of a drug problem, but by a, uh, a food problem. This sort of this uh, baby formula that was sort of kind of uh, um, contaminated, and so uh, you know, regardless of sort of kind of uh, um, who is uh, um, working on these things, there's always going to be that uh, tension, I suppose, until they uh, end up sort of kind of uh, spinning foods off and just leaving the. Uh, Federal Drug Administration, or uh, you know, there's always the proposals on the table, and uh, you know, I'm sure if uh, that happens, whoever was sort of kind of uh, shepherding that will have to uh, somehow make it onto uh, Mount Rushmore when uh, um, when they retire. I did sort of invite uh, readers and uh, please listeners as well. Uh, um, let me know who uh, who I should have put on there uh, instead of these uh, um, four. If you have any honorable mentions that uh, um, 
we should include uh, somehow. Uh, let me know. Uh, it was it's been uh, fun hearing from folks about uh, um, who they uh, um, who they wanted and uh, um, who they didn't. Uh, one person actually wrote in to uh, argue that uh, he didn't think that they uh, um, the uh, reliefs on uh, um, Mount Rushmore should be called busts because they're not sort of kind of a a 360 view. I uh, um, I'll kind of defer to that uh, um, statutory nerd on that uh, um, on that question. Statutory in terms of like an actual statute, not sort of kind of statutory in terms of the uh, the uh, legal term for laws. But uh, um, it's, it's it's always for kind of a, a fun interacting with readers and sort of kind of the stuff that they know. So uh, um, I uh, um, I'll have to. Uh, up my art history knowledge, uh, uh, in addition to my uh, you know, sort of kind of FDA regulatory uh, uh, history knowledge, just sort of kind of to uh, better describe what the uh, well, what Mount Rushmore actually uh, is. If I do do another one of these at uh, at some point, we were talking before we started. I mean, I I love these goat debates, so like goat, not the animal, but greatest of all time acronym. Um, we tend to see them a lot in sports, but you know, not really with FDA, which which is you know. It's got you know made me kind of laugh a little bit, but I'm I'm curious if it you know of about any of the nominees that you got from um you know from the readers. I, I don't you know I mean I I immediately thought of several names, but I'm curious what they came up with. Yeah, I had a, a bunch of uh, um, interesting ones. Some were kind of on the uh, um, food and uh, um, uh, um, even dietary supplement side that I honestly don't know enough about to kind of. Uh, you know, make a uh, um, make a comment on, but people said that uh, um, you know Bob Temple or uh, Rick Pastor should uh, um, should obviously sort of be in the uh, the conversation about that, and I can't uh, I can't argue with that. So that's uh, there's certainly uh, um, a lot of uh, um, uh, you know sort of kind of great uh, FDAers over the years who have made uh, profound contributions to the agency and uh, and to public health. Yeah, those are the two that immediately popped into my mind. Was you know just because of their the profound influence that they've had on, you know, in Bob Temple's case, just drug development in general. And, um, you know, Rick Pastor basically, you know, tells people how to develop drugs for cancer now. I mean, it's, you know, he, he's, I, I, it, it's, yeah, his, his influence is, you know, is incredible over a really, really huge, you know, segment of the, uh, the pharma industry. Is I mean, you mentioned Scott Gottlieb in in your story, Matt. I'm curious. I know he. I know we don't. I don't like immediacy bias. That that happens a lot with a lot of these discussions. But you know, and he only was commissioner for a couple of years. But you know, I mean, if for the modern era, I mean, I, I'm the more I think about it, I think he probably deserves some consideration for a list like this too. Oh, absolutely, great point. I had him in my runners up. Uh, section and uh, you know for many of the reasons that you uh, you said i mean he has for kind of uh, uh, kessler-esque uh, energy and uh, bipartisan appeal uh, you know obviously he uh, you know i think he sort of has a uh, more classically conservative outlook on these things than uh, um david kessler uh, um uh does but uh, you know very uh, um uh very committed to the agency and uh, you know sort of uh, very adept at uh, getting people excited about, uh, um, you know, regulatory uh, science and operations. And, uh, um, you know, he, uh, um, you know, as we kind of continues as uh, uh, Kessler has to be sort of a prominent figure in these uh, these spaces after he left the uh, the agency. So he's uh, um, very much, uh, um, you know, a, uh, a fresh uh, take on uh, Kessler's uh, uh, templates are kind of, uh, you know, very uh, um, uh, public relations focused, but also, uh, Highly committed to uh, um, 
you know, to doing the uh, the right thing uh, from a uh, regulatory framework. The other thing that's, I think, kind of interesting about Gottlieb is he was really the first commissioner to sort of publicly talk about drug prices in a way that we never heard FDA commissioners sort of talk about it. And I think um, that was a sort of like kind of an historical moment in a way um, for FDA to think a little bit more and be willing to engage a bit in the price debate in a different way than they had. Um, one person that was sort of on my list, and, and, and again, I sort of th agree with Derek, I'm probably very biased by just like what's within my time frame of covering <laughs> FDA and would need to really um, go back in history more to be a fair, you know, chooser, but um, was um, John Senior, who was very active in drug safety and um, dealing with liver injury and so forth. And he worked at FDA until he was like in his early 90s, which is just very impressive. Um, but I also have Bob Temple on my list as well. Yeah, those are, those are great uh, points, Sarah, that, uh, you know, sort of in each uh, sort of kind of regulatory epoch, uh, FDA has always said, uh, Oh, well, well, you already consider this uh, stuff like, well, you know, when they, the Kefauver-Harris uh, amendment was being uh, debated, they said, well, like, well, you know, when we think about safety, we obviously have to consider efficacy. And, uh, um, you know, even though it's not sort of kind of within our mandate and then sort of kind of, uh, um, you know, when the sort of REMS uh, um, were rolled out, uh, you know, the uh, uh, agency had argued that, uh, oh, we already have powers as we're kind of to uh, just we're kind of, uh, you know, sort of put these uh, these safety overlays uh, on things. And uh, um, in many ways, we're kind of the agency has kind of resisted additional authority um, through kind of, uh, you know, with uh, Gottlieb and pricing, you know, they 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 have no kind of market authority to uh, to assert, but sort of kind of Gottlieb uh, very uh, explicitly said that sort of if we pull reg uh, regulatory levers, we can sort of kind of change the marketplace in uh, um, in that way, making it cheaper for generics to come on the market, making it cheaper for you know follow-on drugs to come on the market, so that we have sort of have more you know competition within uh, um, categories. So it's sort of it's a uh, in a sense for kind of the FDA embracing a uh, um, a role more than kind of uh, being dragged into a regulatory mechanism as it's sort of kind of perhaps was sort of during the, uh, the, the the last few uh, um, shifts. Uh, um, obviously, without explicit authority, there's not as much as the uh, uh, agency can do as it can to kind of on the safety and efficacy now. But uh, um, that's a, uh, um, it's a it's a new era for uh, for the agency, and you you, you kind of uh, saw sort of kind of uh, not just uh, um, Dr. Gottlieb talking about stuff, but uh, um, you know, also, uh, um, you know, sort of kind of, uh, you know, way down into the division, people talking about sort of kind of, uh, you know, we need to think about uh, patient access and sort of kind of in a way, not just like, uh, you know, access to a new treatment, but sort of kind of access in a way that sort of kind of they can, uh, uh, they can afford. So it was sort of kind of a very much a, a phase shift, uh, you know, based on his uh, impetus. Another name I'd throw out just from the, the legal side of FDA's house would be Rick Blumberg, Rick Blumberg, excuse me, um, the late Rick Blumberg, who was considered, you know, a longtime uh, enforcement um, attorney in, you know, in, in the office. He's got a lecture named after him by the Food and Drug Law Institute and, uh, you know, considered, you know, really influential on the compliance side, on the the enforcement side, kind of setting the standard of how how all that's um that's done too. So I'd, I'd throw his name into the mix too, just in terms of influence. We, we, we started this talking about Dr. Woodcock and I don't want to, you know, trample on Dr. Woodcock's retirement by forgetting <laughs> about that, you know, as we, you know, putting the Mount Rushmore together. But um, I mean, 
you know, she's leaving in the, in in a few days now. Uh, I just wanted to get you know spin this forward a little bit. You know, FDA post Woodcock. I mean, do you do you all feel like everything is in place? I mean, obviously life goes on, and you know, other influential people have left FDA before, and it's still there and it's still fine. But you know, do you feel like you know the agency is kind of in in play? You know, has everything in place to kind of be able to transition from somebody who's had you know as much influence as she's had over over that you know that agency for so long i guess we'll never uh know i mean i don't think the agency uh uh you know perhaps feels like it has everything in place even with uh, dr woodcock here no knock on dr woodcock or the agency uh uh you know as i was tell, saying it's just like it's a very hard job that they're always sort of uh, resource constrained and they always have to respond to crises rather than focusing on uh, you know whatever projects they would prefer to uh to be uh, um, designing themselves, and so uh, um, you know these crises sort of can lead to uh, to improvements, like we're seeing with uh, um, the uh, um, the ORA reorg or uh, you know sort of a drug safety uh, uh, tumult in uh, decades past. That's sort of kind of led to uh, you know I think sort of uh, helpful reforms. So uh, um, uh, you know the agency will in fact go on, and uh, um, uh, you know uh, uh, Woodcock will be missed, but it. Uh, um, uh, the the uh, they will uh, stumble and succeed just as they uh, um, as they always have. I would I would argue. Yeah, I kind of I I kind of feel the same way that you know you you can never really be ready. But you know I'm also curious to just how the the approaches that um, you know Dr. Bumpus, who's going to take over as principal deputy commissioner, and you know Dr. Cavazzoni, who's been cedar director for a while now, um, but you know is still kind of you know as as they grow into the job even more, you know, the jobs even more, how their approach compared to Dr. Woodcock, you know, maybe on the administrative side, she's always said that that's kind of her, that was kind of her big, um, you know, her legacy was all these administrative improvements that she made, whether it's pulling Cedar into electronic record keeping or, you know, uh, creating, you know, electronic safety systems and and things like that. Um, You know, you want, you know, the, that sort of thing, those sorts of things have to be updated every now and then as well. And you wonder if, you know, how, you know, how these, you know, the next generation is going to respond to that, um, you know, or will they be as aggressive or will they take the same tack that she did? Or will they, you know, kind of try and find their own uh, path to to dealing with those sorts of issues? Yeah, I mean, I guess I think a, a big difference, obviously, between Dr. Bumpus and Dr. Woodcock is just the length of service, right, at the FDA before being in that role. So I think, um, you know, and Bumpus will bring more of an outsider perspective, right, a sort of new perspective from FDA, which is is not necessarily going to, you know, bad or good. It's just going to probably trigger different thought processes and so forth than and ideas that maybe somebody who spent an entire career at FDA. And of course, you know, I think we've talked about this before. There is just like general concern about whether FDA is like cultivating enough people who want to kind of like be at the agency and stay at the agency for a long time and have those sort of long-term careers like Woodcock, which, um, you know, lead to that sort of historical knowledge and understanding and um, can help shape an agency in a different way than, you know, people kind of who pop in and out for short periods of time. Yeah, it's a difficult, you know, thing that they have to deal with, you know, trying to encourage, you know, career career focus and then at the same time, 
keep their you know keep their perspectives fresh and not kind of live in the ivory tower so to speak up there so yeah it's gonna we'll have to see how it plays out but yeah it's an it's an interesting um an interesting issue and that that you know the agency will have to has been dealing with and will have to continue to deal with Next, we're going to switch gears a little bit and discuss puberty blockers, which is another controversial issue that the FDA likely will have to deal with going forward. Sarah, it looks like the FDA met with an endocrinology group on this subject. Right. So um, FDA Commissioner Robert Califf and other FDA staff members met with the Endocrine Society and um, a a doctor and some um, lobbyists the Endocrine Society worked with. Um, to talk basically about the um, Endocrine Society's guidelines around the use of puberty-delaying medicines. Um, Earlier this month, it comes at at a time, maybe I guess a couple years or two, where there's been a lot of attention to the use of these medicines at the state level, with a number of states largely driven by red states, red states, if you will, or you know, Republican-dominated states have been trying or have successfully banned the use of these medicines for um, gender dysphoria. So um, sometimes um, children or really adolescents. Um, are are given the puberty delaying medicines um and they're because if essentially they are sort of preserves the option for them if they may want to transition their gender later on um and some states have banned this use it is an off-label use um so you know um traditionally that's something right practice of medicine has been left to kind of like individual doctors and states to regulate and but there is also a citizen petition that was filed at the FDA that I think um, c- probably you know comes a little bit from the side of um, you know potentially not wanting to encourage this use of the drugs and basically asking FDA to try and like get more research and put out more public warnings about the potential risks of using these drugs in this way. So um, you know I think likely that not just all the state action, but the fact that this is now sort of citizen petitions in the FDA's hands, um, probably motivated the endocrine society to make sure um, they had their side of the, you know, the story, which like most mainstream um, American uh, kind of medical societies and groups like the endocrine society, the American Medical Association, other groups that serve um, pediatric patients and so forth. um, You know, I think generally, are, are supportive of the potential use of puberty blockers for people with, you know, gender dysphoria. Um, you know, they, they certainly acknowledge there's like any use of a drug, there are some risks, but you know, that there are cases where for many of these people, the benefits outweigh the risks. So it'll be interesting to see um, because it's such a politically divisive topic and it gets really into this, um, gray area of what is FDA's authority since it's not an on-label use, <laughs> whether, um, but there's sort of this like very unequal access around the country, depending on where you live to this off-label use, how or FDA weighs in and, you know, what it sees as its role here. Um, and also, again, just sort of, um, you know, when they weigh in, because again, um, you know, it is a politically, um, 
divisive topic. Um, and, you know, it, it could create um, potentially maybe some, you know, problems for the Biden administration as well, depending on how FDA handles it. Yeah, I strongly so, suspect you will not hear anything uh, from the Biden administration on this. And if uh, um, if you do until uh, after the uh, um, uh, the election, uh, um, just because it's sort of such a hot uh, button topic, uh, Sarah, as you said, but uh, I uh, I stepped on what I think will probably be a more thoughtful uh, question or observation from Derek. So Derek, go ahead. Which which is the bigger issue that they have to weigh in on here? Is it the is it the culture war thing or is it you know dealing with the off label use question? Um. Well, I, I mean FDA, right? Like they. There are some questions I think in the citizen petition or some um, some requests in the citizen petition, I guess, that FDA weigh in because they've made the petition authors are arguing that there's some improper promotion of the products in terms of how drug companies are essentially like um, supporting groups or supporting really like hospitals <laughs> that provide, you know, um, LGBTQ, you know, inclusive care or um, AbbVie is like cited for its work, you know, with an organization that focuses on the acceptance of transgenderism and non-binary sexuality among children. So they're not necessarily like accusing any of the drug companies of like explicit off-label promotion <laughs> and you know because of that i think lawyers some lawyers that i talked to and some forth said like that seems to be actually probably one of the like weakest arguments of the petition right um it doesn't really seem like any drug company is engaged in like specific off-label promotion here and again off-label promotion or sorry off-label use by doctors is considered you know kind of fair game in the U.S. Um, and, you know, a lot of the regulation around practice of medicine falls to the states. Um, so this is just like, a again, like kind of like a, a difficult, I think, area for FDA to figure out, like in general is, and I, I, I sort of tried to ask them about, like, do you have sort of guidelines or policies to figure out, like, is FDA supposed to intervene in this, you know, um, situation when there's sort of um, very different, you know, policies happening throughout the country? Is this just something where FDA is supposed to stand back and let, you know, again, as with the argument that this is not under its sort of what Congress has delegated it to do, um, you know, it's it's more common for FDA to intervene when there's like specific safety concerns related to off-label use that are not on the label and there's like clear evidence of that, you know, then they sometimes do add, you know, just warnings or just in general where you put the safety information, you know, to make clear um, those things. It seems like um, based on, you know, the research I did and talking to people, it's less common for them to like deal with like any efficacy gaps around off-label use. Um, but there have definitely been some time, some, you know, sort of times where people have tried to engage FDA in similar issues that I, I sort of looked at to kind of get a sense of, for an older story of like how they've reacted or, or not reacted. Um, but um, 
you know, my, my general sense is like probably FDA wishes they could just ignore this petition <laughs> um, because it just, it, I mean, you know, they spent the past few years trying to um, say, you know, we're sort of these, we're, we're scientists, we call, you know, the balls and strikes based on science. And I, I think it's going to be hard for them to weigh in on this issue without being seen as sort of taking a political side. Yeah, I mean, that's my question. If they, you know, if they say, you know, they respond something like, you know, well, it's not a use that's on label, that's a factual statement. But yeah, you could easily see that being twisted into, you know, whatever you want it to be twisted into, you know. Um, and, you know, they could say like, well, we don't have any data suggesting one thing or the other. And then again, that gets, all gets, yeah, twisted into whatever you want it twisted into by, you know, social media and and everybody, you know, parsing words how they want to feel like parsing them. So yeah, it's a yeah. These are these are the decisions that you know you you don't think Solomon himself can handle. And a lot and, of these drugs are generic now, right? So you know, I'm not sure there's any party that's sort of motivated to come to FDA with the like sort of more formal evidence base that could be evaluated to decide whether to officially put it on label or not. I think that's like the, that's, that's what might be a path FDA would at least like be more comfortable with because then it kind of clearly um, places it right within their sort of realm of authority and they, you know, mm -hmm. they would have sort of very specific standards of how they weigh that evidence. Yeah. I thought uh, the, the, uh, comparison you made or the point you made in, in some earlier stories about sort of kind of how the legal tumult over the uh, um, COVID era ivermectin uh, tweets were kind of in some ways sort of is uh, uh, suggesting that sort of kind of FDA's hands uh, may be tied even if they wanted to weigh in on, in on this one because uh, whatever they did could be subject to legal challenge about sort of kind of weighing in on off-label uh, off uses. It's uh, just a very uh, um, uh, dicey situation for them from uh, um, for, for several reasons. Yes, the Fifth Circuit um, in recent um, months has, um, b you know, basically made the case that FDA really has very little um, authority or ability and can kind of overstep its bounds when it starts giving the public, <laughs> you know, sort of advice on off-label use. And I, I, I think um, that's going to be a case we're going to have to keep following and watching closely and see what happens because, um you know, if, if that somehow gets held up in broader courts or other things, you know, it could really restrict every FDA's authority to sort of act as like in this broader way around public health and safety um, and so forth. But right, I, I think just like the, the presence of that ongoing case um, is interesting, although it's kind of like, um, I think it, it's sort of interesting because I think conservatives are sort of pushing this ivermectin case. And at the same time, I think there's a bit of a conservative ideology kind of pushing FDA to weigh in on some of this um, off-label um, use around um, the puberty blockers. So it's like when a political ideology, sometimes it's like not, there's a little bit of like inconsistency maybe in the political ideologies of like, they want FDA to weigh in at certain times if they think it'll be, do what they want and they, they don't want FDA to weigh in if they think they won't. <laughs> Yeah, the, uh, you know, we, we always weigh, uh, you know, uh, safety and efficacy sort of kind of uh, very individually. There's no, uh, um, 
uh, there's no getting around for kind of whatever the product is or for kind of the, the situation is, or for kind of it's a, it's a different uh, circumstance each time. That's a, it's an interesting issue to kind of keep on the radar or, you know, going forward here. So thanks, Sarah. Finally, we're going to look at new safety labeling that the FDA is ordering for CAR-T therapies. The agency posted letters to six CAR-T therapy sponsors on January 22nd, requiring them to update labels with a new boxed warning on the risk of secondary malignancy after treatment. Other areas of the labels, such as the warnings of precautions section and post-marketing experience sections also have to be updated. But there appears to be some disagreement between the FDA and the sponsors. Multiple CAR-T sponsors said they have found no evidence that suggests CAR-T therapy is linked to secondary malignancy. And then we also found that the mandated labeling changes for one of the CAR-Ts, Kite Pharma's Tacardis, has some had some less affirming language about secondary malignancy than the others. Then on January 24th, the FDA pulled the Tacardis letter off its website, which triggered speculation that the product may be no longer subject to the boxed warning. And later that day, a new letter on Tacardis was posted that required labeling language that was more close that more closely resembled what the others had had to add. And after all that, CBER Director Peter Marks and Office of Therapeutic Products Director Nicole Verdun published a perspective piece in the New England Journal of Medicine describing how genetic sequencing of some of the secondary malignancies included evidence that the CAR transgene was in the malignant clone, suggesting the CAR-T therapy may have been involved in development of the cancer. But they still said causality is difficult to establish. So these box warning announcements you know, are significant you know, and, and, you know, especially for the people who follow this sort of thing. Um, but CAR-Ts are still likely to be considered like transformative therapy for a lot of cancer patients. So do, do you all think that this sort of thing is going to, you know, create some doubt about use of these products? The sponsors certainly seem uh, worried enough about that. It may just be sort of kind of uh, instinctive, uh, you know, they want the most positive label they uh they can have and uh, you know for liability or whatever other reasons they'll sort of kind of resist uh, um anything they they can um i i personally don't think it's uh, that much of a uh, um a shift to kind of read the uh you know the the warnings before or even through kind of after the announcements investigation they sort of kind of had sort of kind of listed it as for kind of a uh you know uh more theoretical risk and now uh you know theory is for kind of uh becoming coming into practice at a, at a, at a very uh very very low uh event rate as you noted in your story uh um derek but i think uh you know as uh sponsors are hoping to move cartes out into other uh um domains beyond cancer you know, kind of uh, you know autoimmune uh, um diseases uh, um seems a uh, um uh, you know, an appealing uh, um, target for uh, um, for them. This sort of kind of the uh, the risk benefits uh, may change there. So, uh, to the extent that they can sort of uh, um, uh, you know hold the line on uh, um, uh, adding these risks, they could uh, make a better case that sort of there's a there's less inherent risk uh, um, in it, perhaps uh, you know sort of less uh, less deadly indications. So that could uh, um, aid their development there. Uh, you know, Peter Marks, as you reported uh, um, there a couple of weeks ago. Uh, um, uh, you know, said that, uh, um, you know, they will, uh, uh, continue to, uh, um, the, you know, the sponsor should continue to do this, this, this research and other, uh, in other conditions and that the, he doesn't see in the, uh, you know, he still sees the, uh, uh, the, uh, the trade-off as, uh, as very positive for, uh, um, uh, for patients. But, uh, um, I think that's what, uh, sponsors are worried about, uh, more than their, uh, their current indications, I suspect. 
Yeah, I think they're going to have to get good at answering this question, however, whatever the answer is, however they decide to deal with it, because you, like you said, you know, every indication you're going to get, either you're going to get a question at, if it's an advisory committee meeting, you'll get a question about it from somebody saying, what about this? Or, you know, the FDA is going to bring it up every time or they're going to make them test, you know, follow that, get data on all that, on that issue um, going forward, just to make sure it's not, you know, the risk isn't increasing. Um you know, it's a, yeah, it's just a, you know, I, th I think this is just going to be kind of an ongoing, whether it's in the background or not, it's going to be kind of an ongoing type of um, thing that they're going to have to just add to the list of things they're going to have to deal with on this. We we haven't really on this podcast talked much about uh, FDA's communication strategies in a while. That, that seemed to be like a COVID thing um, for, for you know, but um, I, I'm, I'm curious how you guys would rate the the way this one was kind of rolled out. We didn't really, we didn't see an FDA press release on it. We just kind of, you know, they just posted the letters and everybody kind of caught on to it. And then they didn't really say anything when they pulled the letters, pulled the one letter down and then posted the second one. And we got some comments from them after the after all that it, it was taken care of. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you think the, you know, if you think that there could have been, uh, if this could have been handled differently. Oh, I was going to say, I mean, it seems like it, it would have been helpful if, you know, they wanted consistent, you know, language from the sponsors that they did that the first time, right? I think it's probably <laughs> yes. confusing to pull things, put things up, take things down. And I mean, the other thing, and, you know, for just for like the transparency, I think, aspect of it and clarity for the public, you know, we're used to with the Center for Drug Evaluation and Research, um, you can kind of like track the evolution, right, of product labels and all this communication over time. And it seems like they're like, just like sort of, as they've been making changes, they're pulling old versions of labels and so forth off the website and so forth. And I think, you know, that's kind of raises issues. Like, I think it's good for FDA to leave that like historical record out there for the public. So they may, you know, want to think about or, or justify why, they are doing that again, as long as you're clear on the, uh, with the, that record that, you know, this is not the most up to date label, but I think it's important for people to be able to track and see how things have changed over time. Yeah, I suspect that the um, agency was perhaps hoping to uh, roll this out along with the uh, um, the embargoed uh, um, study that they had in uh, um, in NEJAM and uh, um, it may have been a uh, um, a posting error that sort of kind of uh, um, led to uh, the sort of the uh, early release of this. That, that doesn't explain sort of kind of why they uh, um, kind of had a back and forth on uh, um, you know, kind of you know re re, re revising uh, um, one of the labels that uh, um, just seems like some sort of kind of a drafting haste on uh, um, on their part. But uh, to give them the benefit of the doubt, I imagine they were kind of hoping to announce it all kind of with their you know, sort of, uh, 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 you know, sort of official, you know, sort of kind of uh, published uh, study uh, um, when that embargo lift and lifted and it just sort of uh, got out from under them a bit and, uh, um, you know, caused some of the complications. They obviously sort of invited the complications on their uh, on their own by uh, not, uh, you know, sort of kind of getting all their uh, 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 I's and T's crossed the first time uh, um, uh, with the first round of letters uh, um, themselves. But uh, I suspect that was that's what was going on. Yeah, if we can only predict, you know, when stuff would get posted and when it's when it can't get put when it shouldn't be posted. And yeah, I think everyone would be would be better off, right? 
I guess the other question is they, you know, you, you mentioned they had like calls obviously with the sponsors about this, but like, is this something that should have risen to like a press call or had they, you know, clear opportunity for press to ask questions given the amount of attention to these products? Um, well, well, and I wondered, I mean, I, I wondered, I, I wondered about that a little bit because there was, when they first started the investigation, they, they put something up on their website saying, we're looking into this issue. And they, they named the six products and they said this, we're, we're investigating it. We don't know if this is going to be, you know, we'll take action if we have to. Well, they take action and then, you know, there really wasn't anything other than, the letters, which if you follow that stuff, you're going to find. But, you know, otherwise there wasn't any kind of there wasn't anything posted, you know, whether it's on the same page, say, like with an update on the investigation, like, hey, we just ordered box warnings on this. This is why we said that, you know, or whatever, you know, it, yeah, there wasn't any kind of I, I was a little I was wondering why they didn't, you know, they just didn't do the update. And maybe, like you said, maybe it was just you know, they had the knee jam article, they were hoping all of this would come out at the same time. And that didn't happen for whatever reason. It didn't happen. But um, yeah, it's a kind of a, and it, you know, it's kind of a, just an interesting chain of events that I, I think kind of maybe may have confused some people. Well, that's all for today. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and other podcasts on the Sightline channel in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts, as well as via smart speakers if they have been set up as your default podcast provider. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith and Nielsen Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 